Please turn with me now in your Bibles to that book of Revelation that we've been studying. We are today in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, We will begin in verse 9 and we will read to the end of the chapter 21. As we consider once again the bride of Christ, we have been introduced to the bride in chapter 19. Uh, We were told of the city that came down from heaven from God. Um, earlier in chapter 21, and and John will give us a greater description of that bride, that city, as we look at our passage today. And so if you have your Bibles, please take them up and follow along as I read from Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had hit the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide as and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick. By man's measure it, measurement, which the angel was using, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And no day will its gates, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let us pray. O God of life and light, show us your glory as it flows through the church. May our lives be changed as we read and study this passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Following the declaration of God's eternal delight and joy in his people that we saw in the first eight verses of this 
chapter, we see a pattern once again that, that John has, has shown us throughout earlier portions of the book of Revelation where he hears something and then turns to see something that is different yet fills out the, the explanation of what he heard. In chapters four and five, uh, John weeps because no one is able to open or worthy to open the scroll and the angel or the, the elder comes to him and says, tells him of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then John turns to see the lamb that was slain and yet lives, reminding us that Jesus, who died for the sins of his people and rose again, is that lion of Judah. In Revelation 7, John hears the counting of the tribes of Israel and then turns to see an innumerable multitude of people from all nations and types gathered around the throne of God, worshiping. And in this passage, we have the same pattern. John is in a spirit-inspired vision, and here's the declaration that he is going to see the bride. Now, if you're at a wedding or a wedding feast and somebody announces the bride is here, what would you expect to see? Expect to see that woman standing at the back of the sanctuary getting ready to enter in. But John is told that he is going to see the bride. He is carried to the mountain to look at the bride and he turns and he sees a city. A city that comes down out of heaven from God. And so we see in this city, we will learn six things about the church that John sees in this city. This city is the bride. This city is the church. Before we look at those six things, I do want us to talk about the immensity of this city, dealing with some of these measurements that we have here. If you look in the footnotes, if you have the NIV and the footnotes, it gives you the calculations on what these measurements mean, what the 12,000 stadia or the the 144 cubits means other translations actually go ahead and put that in the text for you. But the 12,000 stadia is close to 1,400 miles long. So think of a cube that is 1,400 miles long on each side. To give you some context of that, if you were to drop this cube in the middle of the United States with one corner of one side smack in the middle of Dallas, Texas, the other corner on that same side would reach almost to Los Angeles, California. So think of a square that long and that high, which also reminds us of the symbolism and the nature of the symbolic nature of this city because a city that's 1,400 miles high is about 1,396 miles outside of the breathable atmosphere. Now, Part of me thinks it would be cool. I mean, I wouldn't mind living in an apartment in space. But the picture here is a picture of symbolism to show us the creation-filling nature of God's glorious church. And so as we look at these, the symbolic descriptions of the city, we will see that what John is trying to teach us, what God is teaching us through John here, you know, these six aspects that point to the nature of the church. We'll look at the church's origin. We'll look at its foundation. We'll look at the, its invulnerability. 
We'll look at its universality, its beauty, and its glory. First, the church's origin. Now, this city descends from heaven to earth, but notice that John doesn't say that it merely comes to us from heaven, but that it comes down out of heaven from God. And this tells us that the church has its origins in God. Now, if you take an evolutionary, naturalistic view of the world, the, 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 the source of religion in our world is... Uh, evolved as humanity grew and needed some type of stabilizing force to govern and to determine what was right and what was wrong. So we see things and as primitive men and women that we did not understand in nature, so we assigned the divine to it. Basically, naturalistic evolutionary thought states that all religion, including the Christian church, is an invention of humanity's primitive brain. The scripture tells us something vastly different. Number one, it tells us that we are not a product of random chance over time, but we are created by God in his image and he calls us to worship him. And in helping us worship him in a sinful world, he gives us laws. He tells us what is right and wrong. He writes his law upon our hearts so that we know what is right and what is wrong, and then he provides a way of salvation for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the church finds its origin in God's will, in God's declaration. We are not God's plan B because Adam and Eve or Israel failed. We are part of God's plan from before the foundation of of the world. John tells us in his gospel in chapter 1 beginning in verse 12, he says, "Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God." Without God's action in history, without God's will in your life, there would be no church. The church does not belong to a pastor. The church does not belong to elders or to deacons. The church is God's church. And whatever happens to the church is according to his sovereign plan. John also reveals to us in this message the church's foundation. Now, there's two ways in which John reveals to us the foundation of the church. One is direct, where he talks about the foundation, but the other is actually found within the walls of the city. Whose names are written on the 12 gates of the city that we find in the walls? It's the names of the patriarchs. It's the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. This reminds us that our foundation is found in the Old Testament, God laid the foundation for his church in the Old Testament by calling a people to himself that would one day produce our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've seen this already in Revelation chapter 12 as the dragon came upon the woman whose child was born and then the woman went out into the wilderness with the woman that is pregnant with the child is the Old Testament people of God. The child is Jesus Christ and the woman after the child is born is the church. 
Paul tells us that Gentiles are grafted into the same vine that Israel was grafted into through faith, not by blood. And by the way, who is that vine which both Jew and Gentile are grafted into? It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am the vine, he says in John 15. You are the branches. Once again, there is no plan B because Israel rejected the Savior. Our foundation is the Old Testament. But we also have another foundation that is given to us here, which is the apostles that are given to us as the foundation stones have the 12 names of the apostles written upon them. And just as an aside, this fact that John can see the foundation stones reminds us, points us to the truth that this is a symbolic vision. Where does the foundation typically reside on a home? Underground or in the crawl space, can you typically see the foundation of a home? No. So John being able to see the foundation points to this being a symbolic vision. And Paul picks up this imagery as well in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19 through 26. Give me just a moment as I get there. I did look it up earlier today. Apparently I didn't move my bookmark. But Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. The apostles from the New Testament, the prophets from the Old Testament. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We are built upon the foundation of the scriptures, the foundation of the apostles, the foundation of the prophets as they proclaim to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the Jesus Christ you follow and are founded upon does not match the Jesus of the scriptures, you and your church stand on a shaky foundation. Next, the church is invulnerable. We see the church's invulnerability here. Look at the thickness of the walls. The thickness of the walls are 144 cubits. A cubit is basically the length from the end of your elbow to either the tip of your pinky or the tip of your middle finger, depending upon which historical source you look at. But if we do the math, that's about 200 feet thick. Can you imagine a wall around a city that is close to 200 feet thick? You and a whole bunch of your friends could drive on top of that thing. They are nobody that is not supposed to be in there will not be getting through the wall. In addition to that, there is an angel stationed at each gate. What was the angel there for? Well, we should think back to Genesis chapter 3, where the angel descended according to God's will and with a flaming sword barred Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so that they would not have access to the tree of life. We'll see as we look at the next chapter that the tree of life is in this city. And so nobody whose name is not written in the book of life of the Lamb, will be given entry to the city. In addition to this, all the enemies of God have been sent to the lake of fire. 
And so our city, the church, is invulnerable. Even today, as it seems like the enemies of God are victorious over the church, whether it's through the passing of laws or whether it's through violence done against the church, even today the church is undefeatable, is invulnerable. The worst that the world can do to us is send us to the presence of God. The worst that the world can do to us is help us in our walk toward holiness. The church is invulnerable. It is also universal. In Revelation 7, 9, John sees a multitude that is made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Taking his cues from Old Testament prophecy, we are told that the city receives tribute from the kings and the nations that exist. Everyone is invited to be part of the church. Everyone, every human being to have ever lived is entitled to hear the proclamation of the gospel. It doesn't matter where you are from. People from Rennick and Lewisburg are invited to the gospel table. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Both Floridians with tans and West Virginians with pasty white skin are invited to the table of God. Every person, regardless of their ethnicity, their political affiliation, their sexuality, their skin color, should have access to the good news that Jesus saves. That gospel will change you. It will call you to holiness. But we do not proclaim the gospel to unsaved holy people. We proclaim the gospel to those who are lost in their sins and are in danger of judgment. Everybody is welcome to the table of God's, just, of God's grace. Next, we see that the church is beautiful. Imagine being John and you see this heavenly sight and your eyes are not heavenly eyes. John is, is still, he is not in a glorified body. He, he like Isaiah before him and, and Ezekiel as well, are taken in their fallen nature to see the glories of heaven. And what does John see? He sees beauty. The church is beautiful. We see the beauty in the precious metals, the gems, the pearls that are used to, de to, to describe the building, the building materials of this city. I have to tell you, I was really kind of disappointed in, in, a, in, in several of the commentators as they looked at these jewels, as they looked at the gold, as they looked at the pearls and said, we don't know what this means because, you know, these are just really bad building materials. This means that God sees the church as beautiful. Have you ever, you ever had a friend, a, a female friend that's gotten engaged and she sits there and she's just showing you, trying to show you the ring, but she's kind of got it looking at it like this. See my ring. And, and, and if it's new, if it's clean, it's, it's sparkly, isn't it? It catches the light and it reflects, refracts and reflects the light in a myriad of colors. In this city, this new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, you have red 
jewels. You have green jewels. You have clear jewels. You have yellow jewels. You have jewels of mixed color. And they are reflecting the light of God's glory in such a way that dazzles the eye. Think back to chapter 4 when John is taken to that throne room of God and he looks at the throne where the triune God is seated upon his throne, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this glorious brightness of God's glory shines forth in all the colors of the rainbow. And John is overwhelmed by the beauty of that glory that shines forth from the throne. And it's that beauty that John sees shining forth from the church. Brothers and sisters, it's hard to see the, the, the beauty of the church today. Because often, not oftentimes, all the time, the church is made up of people who are struggling in their walk with faithfulness and holiness. The church is struggling toward righteousness. They have been declared righteous. They have been declared holy. They have been declared beautiful as they gather. And yet we still stumble. We still fall. And it's hard to see the beauty of the church. But from God's perspective, God sees the truth, the reality that the church, you are beautiful in his sight. And you are a source of that radiant beauty in the ugliness of this world. And that beauty comes from a very specific source. It's not just the jewels. It's not just the gold. It's not just the, the pearls. But it comes from the fact that the church is glorious. Why is the church glorious? Well, because that's where God's glory lives. Now, John doesn't see a temple He doesn't see the temple because God and Jesus are there in the city. We're actually given a clue to this when we are given the measurements of the city. Much of the imagery of Revelation is taken from the Old Testament. And you know the only other cubicle architectural building within the Old Testament? It's the Holy of Holies. It is equal in its width, in its depth, and in its height as Solomon built that temple. This is the temple of God, both the city and because the city points us to the bride, the church, and God's glory dwells in the city. Notice it doesn't say that the sun and the moon go away. This is one of the criticisms I hear from people is, how can there be plants in the new heavens and the new earth if there's no sun, there's no moon? Well, it doesn't say the sun and the moon are gone. It just says we won't need them because Jesus is the lamp. Remember when we looked at the fall of Babylon earlier in chapter 17, one of the things that was said about people in Babylon when it fell was that the, the light of their lamps would be extinguished. Look at this city here. Its lamp is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the lamb. And the glory of God shines through that lamp and into the church. The other reason why there is no temple is because the church is the temple of God. If we were to pick up again in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and read verse 22. It says, and in him, in Christ, you also are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
You and I, brothers and sisters, are the temple of God. As we gather together as a church, the glory of God dwells in our midst, shines out through us, and shines the beauty of God's glory into the world. Now notice this city, every corner, every square inch of the city is bathed in the light of God's glory. Wherever you and I go in the new heavens and in the new earth, we will never stray from the presence of God's glory. That is the hope to which we we aspire. That is part of what drives us forward to pursue holiness, to, to clothe ourselves in that glory today. The church's origin is in God. The church's foundation is in the Old and the New Testament. We are invulnerable to the attacks of the devil and the people that the devil cons into following him. The church is offered, the gospel is offered to all. The church is beautiful and the church is glorious. Our passage today closes with a call. And the call is this, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There are two ways to apply this call. There's an indirect way and a direct way to apply this call. The indirect way to apply the call is actually a comfort to us. Many of us carry a sense of vileness or pollution within us. Many times that sense of vileness or pollution comes upon us because of the actions of other people. Maybe their words, maybe violence done against us. It may be some type of, of, of shame that comes upon us because somebody else has done something to us. Brothers and sisters, if that describes you, know that in Christ, that shame, that vileness, that corruption is gone. Yes, you still carry the weight of it. Yes, you still carry the influence of it. But when God looks at you, He sees you as holy, as chosen, as beloved, as His beautiful, glorious child. The second way to apply this call is that it is once again a warning Some of you sit in this place and claim your church attendance as your hope before a holy God. But that is not enough. We must be in Christ, as the scriptures say. Christ must be our only hope, not anything we do. Because God gives us the faith to follow him. God gives us the faith to trust in Jesus. And so as we we should not merely put our hope in a prayer that we prayed or some water that was sprinkled on us in the past, but in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because it is only in Him that we will be cleansed of the corruption, the vileness of our sin. If you don't know what that means, if you are questioning that in your mind, I encourage you talk to myself or to one of the elders. Make sure that you understand the truth of the gospel, that God welcomes sinners, that he turns traitors into servants, that he turns enemies into children. Find your name in that book of life and thereby find your entrance into that glorious city 
that came down from heaven from God. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do ask that you would turn hearts to you. Help us to live in the glory of the hope that you have given. Help us to long for this celestial city. Help us to understand that the worst that the world can do to us is to send us into your glorious presence. Show us the beauty of your church, both here and in the world to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymn book and turn with me to hymn number 151. But as we consider the budget before us, as we consider our life, our work, our walk, our family, take this blessing upon you. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.